Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello! Sorry we're a little bit late. We just had a few login issues, but I'm delighted tonight to be with Robbie Britton, who is a coach, an ultra runner. He ran 650 kilometers across Jordan in 9.5 days in 2019, and he's now the very proud author of this excellent book, which I've just been reading, A Thousand and One Running Tips, The Essential Runner's Guide. So welcome, Robbie. What have you been up to today? Thanks for having me. I've been, uh, where I live in northern Italy, we've had about 20 centimetres of snow, so I bravely stayed inside and uh, rode on the turbo for most <laughs> of the time. Oh, only for a couple of hours, but uh, yeah, just been enjoying looking out the window rather than actually going outside. Oh, oh, so how come you didn't run outside today, considering there is a whole chapter in your book dedicated to the environment? <laughs> One of those is how to run in cold weather, and it says mittens are best, but you can't do social media with them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've got a race at the weekend and uh, I've had a bit of an Achilles niggle recently, so I didn't feel that going out and sliding around on fresh snow was uh, the best best use of my time today. just felt a little bit too risky, so I stuck indoors and uh, I got a lot of work done as well, actually. So it's quite nice when you when you kind of feel like you're, you're cocooned in because of the environment, so I just, yeah, yeah I didn't, didn't brave it, maybe. Yeah, uh, were you doing the work whilst you were on the turbo? Like, is it possible to do work on your turbo? Some, well, yeah, so I spoke to two of my athletes who were racing this weekend whilst on the turbo. So that, yeah, a little bit of work. It does help pass the time. And I did check that they were okay. It was only an easy ride. So I was, wasn't yeah. like... You were just like, and, and then you've got to do this. <laughs> yeah, okay, so what are you what are you racing this weekend? That sounds exciting. I am racing a 30k uh, on the shores of, or the edge of Lake Garda. Uh, Northern Italy is one of the big lakes up here, and it's got I think 1,300 meters of climbing. It's my wife and I are both going over there, and she's she's a much better trail runner than I am. Um, so it was mainly so she could race it, but I, I thought well I might as well enjoy a bit of a run out as well. So yeah, I, I'm 30 kilometers, uh, 30, 30 uh, 1,500 meters ish of climbing, 13 to 1,500 meters. That sounds, and, uh, that's very hilly, it's, yeah, it's very mountainous around there, isn't it? I ran in the Dolomites once 
um, which I think is a bit further north than that, but it's such a beautiful area, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm really jealous of you living in Italy. What made you um, make the move out there? Uh, we've been like in Europe for a few years and we were looking for somewhere a little bit cheaper than where we were. And uh, my wife happened to find an apartment for 5,000 euros. Wow. Um, in a, we're in a very, we're a smallish town, but it's, it used to have a much bigger industry. It was the, the home of uh, Fila, the sportswear brand. Oh, okay. So the, the oh, Fratelli okay. Fila's factory uh, is opposite our, where we live, and it's empty now. And uh, the population of the town's it's got a lot smaller than it was. It's about 1,000 people now instead of 2,000. So there was some, someone was just trying to get rid of where they'd, where they I think they'd grown up here, and they'd moved to Milan. And uh, so we were like, we emailed them and said, I think you've made a mistake on your website. It shouldn't be this cheap. Um, <laughs> and they said, no, no, the guy just, like, he'd, he'd tried to sell it for years and just was ready to get rid of it, I think. And, uh, and we jumped in. We jumped wow. at the chance. And, uh, two wow. years ago, we haven't looked back since. Brilliant. Oh, and so is there quite a community of runners there? Have you got quite a lot of friends um, made over yeah. the years? Like, so we're a little cl uh, club called the Climb Runners. It's interesting, like, it's in an English name, but it's an Italian um, uh, club out of uh, the nearby city, Biella, and there's a couple of people, one of the local lads here, Francesco, who are, I actually met, like, he, well, he was on Strava, and I could see him on top of a lot of the leaderboards, and I sent him a message, and he, I think he ignored it, because he was like, who's this random geezer? <laughs> so I went and I took one of his Strava crowns, so he'd make notice, and then he started, <laughs> and we responded on there, and, and yeah, through them, and there's a few cyclists, there's a, a friend of mine, there's a, a Dutch chap who, who runs a, a cycling B&B &B about 10 miles away in, in Valduggia. And, uh, yes, yeah, so we've got cycling friends and running friends. And, yeah, it's a really outdoorsy community in this kind of uh, neighbourhood. Oh, awesome. That's amazing. And so what made you originally make the move to Europe in the first place? Like, um, was it just a bit rainy in the UK? Rainy? I mean, it rains a fair bit here. Um, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I wanted to try and do better in some of the European mountain races. And I thought the next logical step was uh, going out to, to Europe more. But then, really, it became a decision about quality of life. Like, it's just a really nice place to be and to be in the environment. You, I'm from London. My wife's from Yorkshire. Um, so she's much more used to the outdoors than I. Uh, but it's just an opportunity to, to live a, a life that we kind of dreamed of. And, um, yeah, just taking chances and, and making it happen. So it's just about a better quality of life and doing things we can enjoy things we love yeah, on a daily basis brilliant oh I love it I'd love to live where you live I'd, I'd love to live out there um, maybe one day it's a dream um, but yeah so you were brought up born and raised in London as we can tell um, so how did you first get into we'll get onto the book in a minute by the way just in case anybody's wondering <laughs> I just want a little bit of like a background like who you are um, yeah so how did you get into running in the first place uh, well, that must be just over, well, I mean, 12 years ago now. Uh, a friend of mine at university, I, I played all sports. I played football, American football, rugby, and uh, often made up for my lack of physical stature and technical ability by running around a lot. <laughs> and um, a friend of mine at the end of university, a chap called Adam Smith, he, he signed up for uh, the Windermere Marathon. And I honestly signed up for it so he didn't have sole bragging rights within our group of friends. It would have been unbearable. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, I ran just under three hours 15 on, on that course. Wow. And the bug a bit and, and then uh, did another one at Edinburgh. I went a bit slower because I got overexcited in the first half. And <laughs> end, of that, end of that year, 
um, I looked, yeah, I found the London to Brighton trial race and, and signed up just because it was, it seemed a bit longer, seemed interesting. It was from somewhere I, I lived to, to somewhere that I'd go on holiday. Um, so yeah, I entered that and then since then I've just been looking at different adventures and different races and uh, enjoying it thoroughly. Brilliant. And so we, we always a coach or did that come like after your interest in running? So, so like, as a young, uh, when I was like, oh, 13, 14, I coached football. Um, so I've, I've coached for a long, long time in, in sports. Coached for university, like our, our football, soccer teams, if anyone's American and listening. And, uh, and then when I started running, I actually, I don't know about this the other, I think it says it in the book actually, I started out as an athlete. We did a bit of coaching to support that lifestyle. And I think you see that a lot with, um, with ultra-running athletes. It's, it's a way to support what we want to do. And it, it very, not very quickly, but it, it, the tables turned and I'm now a, I'm a coach. It's my profession, I like to think, and I, I do a bit of running, mm-hmm. I do a bit of cycling, but primarily I'm a coach and uh, and I just love it. It's just like before I, I made the, the leap to being full-time my coaching, I was teaching geography in the outdoors with the Field mm-hmm. Studies Council um, and, and, and some other companies that in that kind of area where you get in the river like GCSE kind of kids and just try to stop any of them drowning and if they can learn a little, a little bit about geography in the meantime brilliant um, so yeah that's so my background has always kind of been teaching and coaching uh, in that regard and I mean the last four or five years I've, I've it's my coaching's progressed because I did a, an MSc with the University of Stirling in performance coaching which is two two and a half years and really really helped me develop not just as a coach, but as kind of helped me plot where I needed to go with my coaching as well in the future. And um, a lot of that probably cut, like trickled down into the book. And in like, the last couple of years, I've just been doing a, the IOC Sports Nutrition Diploma. So postgrad, it's a two-year postgrad course um, in sports nutrition. All this stuff is kind of, it's just made that I'm, I'm more of a coach now probably than an athlete. That's how, at least how I view myself. Um, You'd have to chat to my athletes to see if that was <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds like you're really, really qualified, and 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 I've been reading through the book, and your uh, your teaching and your style your style of writing really comes through in this book. And there's been several times where I've just laughed out loud because of something that you've read. I don't know if it's because if it's because I know you anyway, but <laughs> I just I can hear your voice through this book, and it's just really, really wonderful. Um, so if anybody wants a Christmas present, then I'll put li- the link to this book in the film description below as well. Um, but uh, just before I talk a bit more about the book, I do want to ask you about Jordan just for a couple of minutes because um, uh, we've got a quite a few people interested in that. Um, I'll just read out some hellos just so you can get a sense of, of some people. I'll just read out a few of them. Um, so Marcus McDonald's here. He has says hello. Leon Young's here. Jonathan Russell as well. And John Gardner says hi too. So hello, uh, hello you guys. And if anyone's got a question live for Robbie, then do now is the time to type them in because we're going to talk about Jordan first and then we're going to talk about his book. So yeah, uh, that was in like cast your mind back to 2019. Who can even remember that far back? You got a good long run in before the pandemic, huh? Um, why yes. <laughs> why did you decide upon Jordan? Because it's, it's not a, an area that you hear people doing a lot of running in, um, is it? Like it's not like a, you know it's not like Chamonix. <laughs> well, originally the idea was to go to Siberia, even oh, wow. more, even, 
ironically, uh, and I had different teammates because uh, Lake Lake Baikal is uh, it's the longest lake in the world, um, or the deepest, one of the two, the, the biggest by volume. There's lots of different uh, things about it to make it wonderful, <laughs> and it entirely freezes in the winter, and you can oh. run the length of it if you oh, people wow. have done that. Uh, so I was trying to do that, and I've been out there with Nats and I've been out to wreck it and camp on the ice and stuff. And unfortunately, I just ran out of teammates that were good at coping with the cold. And I was left with, uh, not left with, but like the, the option that I had was uh, I find a picture. Well, he's in here everywhere. Mr. Daniel Allen Lawson, this, uh, this wonderful chap. Um, hey. Yeah, look, looking at a map as if he knows what it means. And, um, <laughs> yeah, because he usually runs in circles, doesn't he, around a track? Yeah, we do. We both enjoy some circular running. And. Uh, and yeah, so Dan's not great in the cold. I didn't fancy like carrying Dan for eight days, frozen solid, and have to resuscitate <laughs> him at the end. So we <laughs> or on a sledge uh, with huskies. Yeah, slightly slightly warmer uh, that suited him more than it suited me. And somewhere interesting, so a friend of ours, uh, Dave McFarland, he came out and and he made a film. And uh, another friend, James Vincent, he took some nice pictures. And for them, as kind of creating that stuff, it's like, they wanted something a bit more interesting. Siberia and us maybe freezing to death. Yeah, that's plenty interesting. Uh, and then when, they, when I pitched a few different locations, and shameless to say, like it really was just looking at where it was quite cheap to fly. Um, <laughs> so scouring some of the budget airlines, uh, Jordan come up as they, they had a recent um, Ryanair connection from Budapest to Jordan that, that made it super super cheap. Yeah, this is all like again, and and so we so we looked at uh, Alfie Pierce Higgins and Mohammed Swati. I've probably got his name pronounced incorrectly there, so I apologise for that. They had run it before and set a record of about 12, 13, 14. We're not quite sure what their record was because it involved rest days and hospital visits. And, oh, right. And some of them running. Yeah, that was a strange one. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so we, 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 that Dan knew Alfie and he asked him about it and, and the idea just blossomed from that. And it just, it's a kind of like... My my first masters at university was in archaeology, um, and so the chance to go and see I did, like, I did geography and archaeology. I've always loved geography, mm. and then to combine that all my loves running, travelling, kind of being with people I like, and seeing like the this amazing landscape, and also the like the, the likes of Petra it was just a it kind of yeah. ended up being a bit of a no brainer. It's just a, an absolutely stunning part of the world and. Like from a cultural point of view, it was very different to what we've done in the past. But just the people were so lovely. Like the thing we might heard like most is a uh, like, "Welcome to Jordan. How can we help you?" And that was just straight away. Like everyone was just really lovely. Um, apart from the dogs, they were quite <laughs> aggressive. Recently, there was a lady who's out there, actually out there at the moment has had her, her trip curtailed after being bitten by a dog. So I was oh, reading no. a blog. Yeah, it proper got into her leg. She was in like the first couple of days. They're really like, they're like sheep dogs, like guarding the, the, the livestock. Yeah. They've got like these bondage necklaces. One of them, like, I mean, we've been seeing it, and it kind of like, it had spikes coming out of the necklace. Like, and you're like, this is, am I like some kind of weird club in London? Or is this really. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, not, well, that's not hilarious. Like, I'd be really scared if I saw a dog coming to me wearing that kind of thing. But, ah, oh, that sounds horrendous, but it looks beautiful. Like, I've just managed to find yeah. a picture of you guys running through the desert there. Like, is that in a wadi, you know, like what they call those waterways? We, we went the slot canyons that, yeah. I mean, I'm like two, 300 metres of sheer wall either side. And, like, the first one we got to was on a shorter day. And uh, 
we had to change a couple of bits because it was a bit tougher than we thought. Um, and like the underfoot conditions there, are, that's actually one of the good days. Mm, very um, rocky, it, is it, underfoot? Well, it just, it was more, I've said this a few times, it was like an idea of a trail mm-hmm. rather than a physical trail. Mm. It was a really, like they connected things up, like, oh, yeah, that'd be brilliant. Oh, yeah, this would be brilliant. <laughs> when you get there and you'd be like, I can't actually see a trail. And <laughs> you're to that. Um, so like the waddies helped because they obviously... Yeah, you, you know, can only really go one direction in in a wadi. <laughs> it's like sheer cliffs either side. That must be helpful. <laughs> it was good. It was good, and we kind of like wary of flash floods, but also kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was a one. I think it was the Wadi Al Alamin or Alamia. Uh, it was between Petra and um, the the Wadi Rum, which is famous, like it's used in big movies and stuff, and it's an absolutely stunning land, like a moon landscape. Oh. Um, but this one was like 20, 30k of just sheer walls either side of you. Wow. And it was just absolutely kind of, I, I, I had a saying, I kept saying to the, the crew, we can't, there's um, a book by a chap called Martin Lindsay about a 1930s expeditions to Greenland. And he says, one cannot exhaust one's superlatives too, too early in an expedition. Yeah. And it was so that we knew the Wadi Rum was coming. We knew these Petra was coming. And the first few days you're seeing things again, that was just fantastic. And a, and a, a amazing but if we we got we run out of words by the end if we just started by being so blown away by everything by the end of the trip it really was just mind-blowingly amazing to see some of these and i don't use those those type of words lightly like, yeah those, it's just yeah, totally the, different to what's in the uk and europe isn't it it's just completely different like the sheer white or the sheer pink cliffs and it's just amazing yeah and then you mentioned jordan so that's the famous um yeah entrance to jordan the the beautiful sand well sand castles isn't it <laughs> like a, um stuff carved into sandstone and you just go through these rocks and it just appears in front of you um it's just absolutely beautiful so like at what point was the um was petra on your trip was it near the end or in the beginning Days. We, we, at the end of one day, we got into Little Petra, which is a, one of the earliest settlements. And then the start of the next day, we went through Petra itself. Um, and we came in from the back end of it. Oh, what the, the names? Because there's, there's the Treasury and oh, the other bit. We, we came in at the back, and we, our first site was this huge, like it's carved into the stone and carved into stone before. Like it just the, the, like, even on this the, the the picture there, you've got of the building that we ran into there. Um, we actually went back and took a couple of pictures afterwards because we, we were rushing through early in the morning and like we wanted to spend as much time as possible. And this is, we didn't come through that way. We had actually left before we got to that the first time, took a right before we got to the nice bit. But you look at that building and there's little little kind of divots on the side where they climbed up yeah, and built up. Yeah. And it's just... Yeah, with no absolutely. ropes, presumably, like no safety. Like they might have had scaffolding a bit maybe, but like they'll just climb up there and ham- chip another bit off. <laughs> yeah, I get like, again, we don't know. Yeah, there's so much, so little known about it. And it was kind of left empty by the, for, for many many years or there's kind of people like living in there quite roughly. And now it's a, it's it's one of the most ridiculously breathtaking things I've ever, I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely. I like. It's, yeah, when we talk about not people not running in Jordan, yeah, it was it was a totally different experience. But there was little bits as well, like um, they had the Dana Biosphere, which is like a, a really big U-shaped valley, and we came to like a, there's a really nice little kind of settlement at the top of this this valley before you drop down into it, 
and in this wonderful trail the whole way along it and I think there's pictures in I'll have a look in a sec but there's it's kind of just the whole valley like that is open up and you're you you come to the head of it right at the top and it's just like in full bloom I think we, we weren't even there in the best season for it but it was and then you just you, you wound down in and run through the middle of it and it was just breathtaking especially with like the light in in that kind of a environment as well it's just yeah there were so many moments like that where especially as we've taken our time over the trail we'd get to points and it really felt like we'd earned these kind of special things in some places you were in like the first slot canyon we got to was the middle of nowhere no one else was going to visit it unless they were on the jordan trail so it felt like our little secret and it was ours to enjoy just ourselves and like they had the three main wadis at one point further down and and you kind of drop into them and then climb out again and it was just just the size and scale of it all was, was just brilliant, yeah. Wow, so I, I, yeah. It's a, it's a place to visit on foot, um, yeah. or whatever. If everywhere. there's like a one, like is there one day that people can go and do, um, like if there's like a one day route that people, you could recommend to people, which which bit would you recommend that they do? Weird, right? Because I guess if you went and, if you went and say to, to Wadi Ram, it's, it's a big open space and there's lots of like jeeps and, and we stayed in a Bedouin camp there and stuff. Um, like it's not something you would go and run. Like it's, it's part of that journey. It's like, same with Petra. It's busy, right? If you're there in the middle of the day, it's very busy. And we got special permission to run through from one end to the other in the early hours of the morning. Cool. Um, it wouldn't be the two places. It's the most popular places, most well known. I mean that, like actually logistically that long. Um, that long slot, slot canyon that, that we um, that we run up the Wadi Alamein, I think it was called. I'm going to probably butcher that as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, they'll find it. <laughs> um, that was brilliant, but like as a day run, it wouldn't work because mm. we had to run to the start. Like we had to run 30, 40 k for Petra to get there, and we actually wild camped overnight, and and then we had to carry on the next day. Maybe Dana, maybe the Dana biosphere, because you can stay at the top, you could drop down into this absolutely ridiculous valley, explore a bit, there was somewhere to stay at the other end, there was like a, a bio hotel at the other end, and then you could come back and, and like where we stayed in, in Dana itself, there was like these little kind of cave dwelling style, like rustic buildings that had been rebuilt to like kind of repurposed to, to, as a hotel, and that was really, really nice, but there was so many of it, there was a big town called Karak in the middle, which was kind of like built up like a fort, so then to come into it we had to go through these these uh these wadis as well so there's lots the north of jordan is a, is a lot greener than you might expect um and that was just that in itself was very kind of eye-opening to us there was a lot of greenery uh like the mountains were totally different to the big deserts in the south so yeah picking one day would probably be the dana by dana biosphere d-a-n-a cool. um but in general it's the whole there's, there's, there's such a different um feeling to a lot of that trail People will have to watch the film. Where can they watch it? That one is is if you go on if you search um, Dave McFarland dm2.media I think is his website. Um, that's it's called Lost Dogs and Englishmen, and that one is free to watch. And I would also if you if you're in the if you do enjoy that movie, I would highly recommend uh, the follow up not follow up as such, but Dan Dan Lawson ran Le Jog. Um, in under 10 days uh, that, was, that was last summer and Dave made a film there as well that one costs about £3.50 but I would <laughs> I would look at watching both of them as a two for one um, yeah. I highly recommend it Dave did a brilliant job in, in both of those and um, I'd say that about the first one I'm obviously biased because I'd love to see myself running around on a camera <laughs> although when you look you can tell that I'm, I have definitely got injuries that need sorting and then <laughs> 
the the, the one about the jog is just it's what Dan did there was was an absolutely um, it was one of the kind of the top British performances in terms of multi-day road stuff like going. So yeah, two very nice videos, Dave, Dave McFarlane made. Awesome. Okay, thank you. I'm going to look them up. I've just made a note of those. I'm going to look them up and I'm going to put a link to these in the film description below or if people are listening on the podcast version later, then it'll be in the podcast description as well. Brilliant. So um, it sounds amazing. You've totally sold it to me. I'm, I'm going to go and run in Jordan now. I'm going to go head to Dana and um, and run around there. Um, but we better talk about your book for a bit because that is the reason that we're here. Um, so uh, it's... Uh, sorry? I'll just quickly add that the current record holder for the Jordan Trail is now Amy Sproston. So oh. it's a female-held record as well. So I think it's even more, and she's someone that's like, she lives out there and she knows it even probably even better than I and Dan. Um, so that was always just quite a cool thing to, like, I chatted to her before she tried out on the record stuff. And it's she also had a, a really brilliant experience of, of the trail. So there's more and more people seeing it and, uh, and more stories around that are quite an exciting part of the world. Amazing! Oh, that's great. So, um, do you can you remember what her record is? Um, did she totally I, annihilate it? I think we were like nine and a half, and she was under nine. I can't wow. remember. I, I forced myself to check before the, the, this call, but she was. It was probably just my ego was too damaged to. Uh, <laughs> uh, was she making a film though? Because if you had to keep running back and forth for making this film, that must have slowed you down a little bit. <laughs> I think we only ran back once at the start because the film guys, Dave and, and James, were, were like, oh, come up here, it's a really good view. <laughs> and we ran up and I, I kind of told them off. It's like, we are still here to set a record. <laughs> I mean, like we, we, me and Dan, we, we, we kind of, we got lost a fair bit. We we, we did a quite a big diversion for finding a dog and stuff. But it's <laughs> nothing else. Like, Amy just ran a better run over that. She just ran, she's a fantastic athlete and she, she ran it quicker than we did. There's no, like... Going back and forth for a film or anything, there's never. If we wanted to go quicker, we could, we would have to put our put our foot on it a bit more. I think that's all we could have left it to. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Well, hopefully, um, we'll see that record fall and fall, and more interest in the trail as well. Um, but your, all your experience has basically basically I read this. Well, I haven't read all of it. I've I've dipped in and out because I felt like that was a good way to read this book. Like the tips are very kind of dippy in and out. Like there's um. Yeah, there's just lots of different little bits and bobs in there that you can dip in and out of. But reading it, um, I just felt like it was a compilation of everything that you've learned over the years, like all, all your courses, like um, all your university stuff and your diplomas and and also just you as an athlete yourself kind of distilling all this information, all this hard-won information into um one handy book for everybody to to just use and, and benefit from so like was that easy to do like in term like comparing it to running an ultra or training for an ultra how hard was it for you to kind of just it's a different skill isn't it writing a book how hard was it yeah like I've always written as part of like um of, of my part of my involvement in the sport uh, be it different websites or, or like helping out other little books and stuff like that so like actually I ended up doing like a I got a whiteboard trusty whiteboard and so I can't work out a calendar or anything and um and I just drew like that kind of big blue peter kind of chart where you color in it each bit closer to the target <laughs> I just I just set off I, I, we had a good structure beforehand but like what do we want to include in this book and then I, I kind of well not kind of I let my uh, my 
kind of enthusiasm for different subjects on different days dictate what I was writing. So I was, I'm, I, this is this is my stand-up desk that I'm at here that's made of two wooden apple crates. It's very fancy. And um, <laughs> I'm just typing away and I would write about things I wanted to write about. And then if I was a bit tired about writing about a certain subject, I might uh, like tap into another one that I had a few ideas around and, and come back to the, the, the subject that was a bit taxing a bit later on. And it was over probably two months, like this time last year, um, where I just kind of, yeah, I, I, as anything, I'm quite I'm competitive myself. So I just made sure that I was getting through it enjoying it but putting in like a decent shift of of writing each day um i think i, I think it, for me it's similar to like running right you can only do so much before you're exhausted and the quality of it of it wanes or the motivation for it wanes so i very much treated the writing task as, as i would uh, my training and i did it and when it suited me I, I kind of built my training around it that time if i wasn't if i was low on motivation or kind of inspiration for ideas i went for a run <laughs> or ride my bike and then come back and I had new ideas or um and I think one of the things as well like that has helped me come up with a lot of these ideas yeah my own running career definitely is, is in those pages but the all the running of the athletes I've worked with over the years because yeah. it kind of amplifies the experience like I can learn from my mistakes but I'm also learning from the successes and failures of the people I've worked with and as you learn together and that's like for me that's how I, I coach I try and make it an educational Thing. but uh, it's not just the athlete learning I'm learning from every single person that I work with and then that gets distilled like a few people as well like uh, have come back and said oh, one of the tips they really like was getting your number before a, a race and crumpling it up and then kind of so it doesn't kind of work like flap around as much and it, it oh, yeah. contour for the and my wife keeps going like that's my tip what, like where's the <laughs> yeah Natalie like, it's a team effort there's plenty of pictures of you in there she's like that's my tip. <laughs> oh, that's one thing I really enjoyed um, reading the book was the style of it. And just like every every few tips or so, you're just like, oh, oh, oh. I was just laughing out loud. Like, uh, especially like all the way I got, I've, I've, I've picked my favourite tip, which is um, uh, tip 994. Um, they are there are really a thousand and one tips in here and it's about social media and it says don't waste too much time on social media if you find you haven't got the time to get out of the door for a 30 to 45 minute run delete all your social media apps and you'll have the time for an ultra every day and I just thought that is so funny <laughs> like it's just it's just really true isn't it about everything these days um, so yeah, I appreciated that one. I think I, if I didn't have to do it for work, I would definitely do that one. <laughs> As I said to you before, like, and an idea that come from my coach, Tom Craig's, I put timers on my social media apps and it's made me much more productive with the time I do spend on it. I'm like, oh, I better get this, like, this tweet done I'm supposed to do that's kind of work related. Yeah, I'll, I'll do this tweet and instead of like spending the next hour scrolling through, I don't know, different reels on Instagram or different kind of threads that kind of you end up into the dark space of America or something, <laughs> you just have like, been out, done. Right now I've got more time. What do I do now? I'll go for a run. Yeah. Much better. Yeah. That's the next from second tip though. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good tip, and um, and then the, then the last tip is really funny because you say don't listen to me about social media. I'm an old man now, and <laughs> like, how old are you? Like, you're you're not even forty yet. I wouldn't have thought. Um, and then, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just funny. And you've said I'll be sitting in the corner reading an old-fashioned proper book and grumbling about the youth of today. <laughs> I'm not 
even on TikTok? What, like, how, what do I know about social media if I'm not on TikTok? Yeah, no, I'm not on TikTok either. I did consider it the other day, though, because I was watching some TikTok stuff and they're all dancing around. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I could dance around and do something on TikTok. It just seems like a lot of effort to me. <laughs> a lot of it, like, I guess as well, if, if you're a good dancer, then TikTok is the option. Mm. I like to so. I, like I'm less likely to do anything like my wife Natalie is very good at taking pictures so she her favourite is Instagram mm. uh, mine's favourite would be Twitter because I can write things and then just kind of leave it alone but that's become a bit more of a cesspool of late anyway so it's <laughs> like uh, yeah what, what, which one do you suit the most the same as picking a race or anything like what, what plays to your strengths so mm. if you've got some mad dancing skills uh, I highly recommend TikTok if you're like <laughs> me you have two left feet and zero rhythm then don't go on there I don't think unless it's a uh, <laughs> You consider yourself particularly funny. That should be one of your tips, don't, shouldn't it? Uh, it's a thousand and two tips now. Um, so well, there's lots of different chapters. Like the way the book works is that you've divided it into these really handy chapters. I'm just going to um, show people just there. So there's just um, like there's the basics. There's some training. There's skills and techniques. There's how to run in lots of different environments. Um, uh, your body, racing kit and gear, traveling around, and then stuff, which I especially like right at the end there. Um, and uh, then there's a reading list at the end, which is interesting because somebody has um, has written quite a controversial question about um, that's related to your book, but then also not related to your book. <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, it's it's just really nicely organised. I just wondered if you had um, was there a chapter that you enjoyed the most, like that is the most close to your heart, or was the whole thing just like just a smorgasbord of dipping in and out? I really enjoyed writing about sleep deprivation. Oh, why is um, that? Well, I've been doing a lot more uh, ultra-distance cycling the last couple of years, and uh, I think there's, obviously, again, I'm not as quick as everyone else, so I'm trying to figure out if I can just sleep a bit less. Oh. And I think there's a really interesting um, area there where you're looking at, if you, what's the, the phrase was, if, like sleep, sleep deprivation and getting really sleepy to do with adenosine building up in your brain. And adenosine builds up quicker if metabolic demand outweighs supply, right? So the two ways we can impact that is either increase the supply of energy coming in or reduce the amount of effort going out. Mm. So in theory, if you reduce, when you get to the nighttime, if you reduce your effort a little bit and keep your food kind of up, you can, you'll be surprised at how uh, well you can weather the storm of sleep deprivation. Mm. So I've been, and a couple of my athletes, uh, especially the bike ones, have been working on some stuff around that, and it's been very fascinating to, to talk to different people and try and figure some bits and bobs like that out. Um, so, yeah, I, that's one of the areas I like. But I mean, also uh, things around perception of efforts. There's a bit about sports psychology. I'm no expert on the subject. There are plenty of brilliant experts out there, and that's one of the reasons we had the reading list at the end there. It's one of the ones, I mean, it's Carla... I can't even pronounce her surname. Carla Ma- no, 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 no. Um, oh. uh, Carla Maijen. She's an oh. endurance professor in sport. She's like a researcher into human psychology uh, and sports psychology. Uh, and like plenty of experts like that out there. And one of them is, is, is Dr. Samuel Makora, and his is around perception of effort oh. and how that massively changes what we we uh, we do. So all the physical information that comes up to our head uh, is still interpreted. So yeah, you can you can absolutely kind of blow a gasket in a race, and two people can be in a, a completely identical situation, um, but having different experiences of that identical physical situation. So I often use the experience, and this is what I like, Ryan. I quite enjoy this, this, these chapters because it's a subject that I'm still learning about quite a lot. Um, but if you've got two runners who are a mile twenty 
of a, of a marathon. Right, they've had identical races at this point, identical training. They've got the same fancy super shoes, the same fancy outfits, and uh, and they're at mile 20, and they're both running six-minute miles. But runner number one is being overtaken by people, and runner number two is overtaking people. One of the, the, the physical situation is identical, but the, one of those runners is going to have an easier time of it, mm. and that's because our, his, one of their perceptions of it, of their effort, is completely. Yeah. Challenged by the people overtaking. Whereas if you are overtaking people, you feel like you're on top of the world. And actually, the physical thing's the same. Yeah. But the the actual, the psychological impact it has on us is yeah. totally different. Yeah. Perceived really like effort is so interesting, isn't it? And I, I I remember that you wrote something about a lion popping out as well. Like you can give it or if give it your all, you think you're giving it your all, but actually you've always got a little bit more in a tank. For example, if a lion was to pop out of you and try and catch you, so I thought that was really interesting as well. I always use that one as well when describing uh, like a threshold effort to someone, mm. and you can say, "Oh, well, you get into a lab and you want to between like one and two millimoles of blood lactate," and like people are saying, "What for me?" I'm a lab. Right, but I kind of say to people, like, well, if you're doing this run uh, and you're out there, it's a controlled effort. You want to be ready in case I come out of the bushes or a lion come out of the bushes that you're not quite at full pelt. And, and it just kind of it's a controlled effort and you're ready for, if it's a 30-minute threshold effort, if I popped out of a bush at 30, miles, uh, 30 minutes in and said, I need you to do 10 more minutes, you wouldn't be too alarmed. You'd be like, okay, I can do that. And that was kind of just different ways of explaining certain sessions. I don't know if that's in there, but uh, it's definitely helped it. Talk yeah, through, um, yeah that's definitely in there as well. Um, and we've got a couple of live questions about training, if you're um, game for that. Um, uh, so, so train like a horse says, is it true that the only way to get faster after a point is to lose weight? Um, can excess weight ruin your progress no matter how hard you train? That's an interesting one. It's an interesting question, and it's obviously quite a loaded one because people have different relationships with food, different body compositions, and different optimum racing weights. Um, like, it's it's a one of the reasons I did the sports nutrition diploma was because I was quite frankly scared to give nutritional advice because of the impact it can have on different people. And different people listening to this now, I have to be careful what I say because one person may take it, it may help them improve their running. One person may take the same piece of advice and it becomes quite damaging. Mm. Um, what I would say is, is look into what your optimum kind of racing weight or composition uh, is. And it varies for everyone. It's to do with different heights, like body shapes, body sizes, and what you're training for. And I think a little bit of experimentation is fine. Um, if you're, like, yeah, if you're kind of concerned or you're concerned about a friend who's who's dropped a lot of weight uh, quickly um, or anything like that, it's it's just worth like talking to professionals in these regards. And even myself, like, even after a two-year postgrad in in sports nutrition, I wouldn't consider myself someone that they you would go to. I would be looking at registered dietitians. Um, so with regards to weight, um, I would say look for your optimum, like what your optimum ones for performance. And there is an ex like people think that losing weight, like I think there's a difficult one. You can tell I'm stumbling a little bit because some <laughs> like losing weight won't make you faster, and that's not true. We do know it's true. We have to. There is a positive correlation, but it's not a, a linear one that continues on forever. So there's a point where if you start losing muscle mass or you're you're not healthy, um, if you're kind of it affects your immune system, it affects the consistency of your training then that's going to have a negative uh, effect. So it's just being aware of all the factors at play. 
and and making that like I would advise if you want to try and push things to a, to any kind of limits to speak to a registered dietitian and see if they can help you do it safely. But yeah, I, it's it's not always lighter equals faster. I like to think of stronger equals faster. But if I get stronger and just solely eat cheeseburgers for the next six months, I won't get faster. I might get stronger and lift other things. Um, but so it's just it's important to understand that it does have a a role within your um within performance. But the other thing you get to is performance and health. The top end of performance isn't always healthy either. Like if you looked, if you had to pick a, a top Tour de France cyclist and you stood them there, like Chris Froome took his top off and then you took someone like in a different sport or, or like a sprinter and you said, which one of these people looks healthy? Most people aren't going to pick Chris Froome. No, like poor, poor fellow. He's got like <laughs> a skill, like no shoulders. You wouldn't trust him up. Could you open this jar for me, Chris? Like, <laughs> You're not going to go through and to open a jar of jam that's really stuck on. Um, and it's that kind of battle between performance and health. And maybe I'm doing Chris uh, Froome a disservice here. He might be brilliant well, at opening. He is a major fan of Wild Ginger Running podcast and film interviews. <laughs> but it, yeah, like the, 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 the kind of the, the short answer to that is that I just get terrified of giving out advice. People could take the wrong way on that subject. But it just <laughs> it's important. It is worth considering. Yeah. It isn't an a continuous if I lose weight I will always get faster um, we, we probably all have an optimum uh, weight for performance but actually you see people there are instances where people put on weight they become more consistent they become stronger and their performance is increased that way so if you are like regularly picking up colds if you are regularly injured and you are someone who feels like they have to try and uh, lose weight all the time to get faster there, there could be other ways to improve your performance and it's worth just maybe talking to someone with a little bit more knowledge around the subject oh, very good answer I think that's excellent thank you Robbie um, I've got a question about uh, about you um, and it, it's from um, somebody called Orange Goblin who says at what age or stage in your running career did you decide that you needed to run these crazy distances so I don't know what the definition of crazy is there. To some people, that is a marathon, but um, I'm presuming they mean like uh, the track stuff where you run for 24 hours and all your ultras and the cross Jordan. I think it comes back to our discussion of perception of effort, right? Because our <laughs> perception of normal is impacted by our, our peer groups. So if you sit around a table with a bunch of people who've finished the Tour de Jots uh, or the Grand Union Canal Race or the Lakeland 100 multiple times, and then you talk about what's normal, <laughs> Like the fact that I want to do a 5K is abnormal to those guys. The fact that I, I spend a bit of time, and if I talk to my 24-hour, like the, the squad that we have there, and said, "Oh, guys, I'm going to do a, uh, and girls, I'm going to do a 5K focus. Anyone want to join me?" I'm getting no takers. I'm getting absolutely no takers. So I suppose, yeah, for me, it was a gradual. Like I, I did the first couple of marathons in uh, May of, the, of 2009, and straight away I was looking for more challenges, and the London to Brighton just it just popped up. It just, I don't know how I found it, um, and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge. I've, I've never, I've always seen my kind of most uh, valuable trait as just trying as hard as possible and being kind of stubborn and persistent. So that kind of plays well to ultra running. So I, I, I aim for that. And, and from there, it just became like a stepping stones, uh, longer distances, trying to get faster, get doing races that were long enough. That I could win, uh, which was 100 miles on the bus, uh, and then yeah, you just you end up in a, in a circle of people and circle of friends where it's perfectly normal. I feel sorry for Natalie. She when she met me, she'd only ever 
done she'd done the Bob Graham when she was younger, but she was a fell runner, mountain runner for very short distances. And within a couple of years, she'd signed up and done a 60k. And and then we were in uh, in the Alster Valley in Italy, and uh, around a table with people who she knew, who she'd just seen finish the Tour de France. Although her longest race was 60k, all of a sudden it was totally normal for her <laughs> that people like herself and her peers around the table might do such an event. So we tossed the coin. She let me toss the coin, which is a false mistake. Uh, up as the person doing the, the Tour de France the next year. And she went from 60k straight up to 338k and 120 hours of, of racing, and yeah, that's that's a monumental leap. And it, like part, of it, I will warn people, you, I wouldn't advise that often. It's, if you've got a lifetime of running up and down mountains like Natalie had, the main factor in all those long mountain stuff is the being a little bit ineffective or kind of inefficient on a descent and causing a lot of damage. And Natalie, Natalie goes downhill the same way like a cyclist rolls downhill. There's just no impact on the muscles. It's great, brilliant to watch. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's what normal was to her then. So I, I would say, yeah, for me it was a kind of just a gradual progression into um, uh, abstract behaviour. But the, <laughs> it, well, yeah, if you want to kind of, if, you, if you've got aspirations of, of of doing some longer stuff and to make some friends with people to go races, and all of a sudden it won't quite feel as abnormal to you. <laughs> that's excellent, and of course, buy the book for a load of tips and training. <laughs> Um, we've just got time for um, one last question. Um, uh, it's, it's quite good because you alluded to this earlier. So um, Marcus McDonald says, as well as your book, what books would you recommend for self-coaching? Because I know you do have a reading list um, at the back here with lots of different books. But like, is there one that's really inspired you that you just think everybody else should read? I, so it's interesting, right? If, so for self-coaching... I almost think there's not like I'd like to think my books is a good one, not because it has all the information, but it, my my role, my kind of part of it was to try and put you on the right path. So there is a section on do you need a coach and and what should I do in that regard. And for me, coaching, if you're self-coached or if you are a coach yourself, it's just about constantly trying to learn more. So like my favourite reference point, like I I absolutely adore Google Scholar. Right, I love just trying to find out about certain. It doesn't mean there's like loads of different. You can't type in there, and there's, there's obviously skills involved in reading an academic paper. But there's loads of little kind of nuggets that I've picked up over the years that are my favourite little articles. Um, be it like there's one from 1989 looking at Yanis Kouros on the Sydney to Melbourne, and all he eats the whole way across. Um, so like, yeah, my my feelings always go towards some of that kind of more academic stuff. Um, but I would look at like so when I did that, the work with Sterling University, it wasn't about this is how you coach. It was how to develop as a coach. So I would definitely, I mentioned about Carol Dweck's mindset. Um, that's the one I would recommend to people out of that, of that list there. And it's more about how to improve your own kind of mindset around um, development and, and how you're kind of like, it's a growth mindset it's around. So it's kind of having a this, this mindset that you want to improve and keep improving and how, like, a, a, almost for me, I, I quite like thinking of not chasing failure, but not being afraid of it either. And, and, and learning as much as you can from each opportunity that you get in life. So probably Carol Dweck's would be the one where I would say, like, read that, uh, and and then you're going to get that. That's about how you, you get the right mindset to improve as a coach or as, as someone self-coaching, rather than there's plenty of really good books that you can pick up. Um, I, I don't follow Tim Lakes on Twitter these days. He's gone full it's tin foil hat conspiracy. But like the law of running or Daniel's running former or like... 
Steve Magnus has got The Science of Running, which is a really nice book to read. It goes through like a lot of the, the different uh, types of sessions and there's some really nice inspiring stuff in there. There's so much information on like my website, fastrunning.com, but like loads of information out there. There's almost too much information mm-hmm. these days. So rather than telling people you should be reading this, that or the other, I would develop the skills to find out what you need to learn and, and, and kind of get in the right mindset there. So that's another... Yeah, it's not. It's, it's a non-answer almost. Well, yeah, I did no, say, that's Carol. good. I'll put a link. Yeah. I've just made a note of that book, Mindset by Carol Dweck, and I'll put a link to that in the film description and the podcast notes below as well. And we've just had, um, we've just had one last question come in from John Gardner, which I, I really must ask because he is the first person that supported me on Patreon. Um, so he's a, a top top fan of the channel. He wants to know your opinion about um, training. Um, 80% of your time at a lower heart rate um, for endurance because there's that whole 80-20 rule that um, Ian Sharman definitely talks about and a lot of other coaches talk about so where do you stand on the whole 80-20 low heart rate high heart rate business the 80-20 stuff is made popular by Matt Fitzgerald's books in the US but um, actually it comes back to Professor Stephen Seiler who's a Texan guy who's based in in Norway and I definitely I, I address it in the book um, I have tried to send a copy out to uh, Professor Side. I would love to him have a read of this book. It, it's interesting. It's just, it's definitely like it's one I like to kind of uh, to to have as a foundation of my own coaching. It's not always the right thing for each individual situation because um, it can vary. Right, we're talking, and a lot of the research comes from the, the Scandinavian countries. Uh, not just the endurance running, but also their, their cross-country skiing, which they're massive at. They're also big in the cycling at the moment. Um, and the 80-20 as a kind of set fast rule, you can interpret it in slightly different ways. You could look, okay, well, say you're 20% of the week. Is that 20% of your sessions involve times when you go above the, the second lactate threshold? Or is that like, do I count four by five minutes? Do I only count the five minutes? Is that only 20 minutes? And mm. how does that work? Or if you're doing you have a slightly lower mileage and you're coming into training and you had 80-20, you're only running four hours a week. Um, maybe actually if you're only running a small amount of time in your week, there is a bit more benefit to doing things a little bit more steady because you're actually you've got the recovery needed to do it. So I think there is a common error we see where people run their their easy running too hard. And this is one of the things that 80-20. Silas research with a bunch of people, he looked at the difference between recreational, sub-elite, and elite runners, and he looked at their training. And the difference between recreational and sub-elite was the polarization of the training. So, like the recreational guys, a lot of it was in the middle, right? It was the sub-elite, it was polarized. It was a lot easy, and then it was that bit, the 80-20 split was that they looked at, right? So that's good. But what that tells us is either everyone who's not good enough is running too much in the middle and it's not getting the adaptations they need, or everyone who's not good enough, not good enough, but the recreational runners, they're running their easy run so hard that they can't do that much of it because the difference between the sub-elite and the elite was the volume of training they did. Mm. And it's not, all, again, not always the be-all and end-all, but in that situation between the people that did get their training like polarised, they were then doing more. Um, because I like to think that if you do your 80% easy enough, you can increase the overall volume because you're not bashing the life out of yourself. If you try as hard as possible, you're, not, you're never going to uh, bump it up. And even... But I think it was on one of Sarah's podcasts, he spoke about working with the Norwegian uh, cross-country skiing team. They were going as far as 90% of their training um, of the lower intensity, 10% higher. But you've got to remember, you're talking about people doing 40, 35, 40 hours of training a week. Mm. So they're still doing four or five hours above that intensity. And then 
we, we, we try, we love like a one size fits all. It's, much, it's brilliant, right? It's much easier, mm-hmm. but it's not always that simple. You can't take studies that come from people that, do, that train 20, 30 hours a week and then put that straight down onto someone who's a, like a, a parent of two small children that's got a nine to five job and like a, an elderly parent they look after in the evenings and they only run four hours a week and you say, well, it's got to be 80, 20. There's, there's a real mix to it. So that my opinion is it's, it's brilliant research. I would, there's some really good, like that's another one where I would look up the research written because the one by, one of the ones by Sider that looks into it, um, it's really readable. It's not like it's that, sometimes it's, even this word itself for me, esoteric, that, I didn't know what that meant before I learned it. <laughs> I don't know if I actually know what that means actually. <laughs> Does it mean like hard going? No, no, esoteric is it's like written in a way that's understandable to only a very small audience. That's oh, my understanding. Yeah, hard going. <laughs> so like, you go, yeah, it's kind of academic writing can be very esoteric and that uh-huh. only the academics understand it. Uh-huh. Right? And even the word to describe it is in itself esoteric. You're like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Well, that's not for me. I'm from the lower <laughs> classes. So I shall stick with my Beano comic. Um, so, but it, like, here's the, the papers they've written there. It, it's readable. You get this nice, like, it's written in a way that I can understand it. That, that you, actually someone is self-coaching or kind of a bit more intrigued about it and they've read some of the, the books or the more popular articles, I'd, I'd recommend going and looking that, that way. Go and have it like, like chat to some other people that, that maybe or chat to coaches down your local club. Like reach out. That Stephen Sorrell is fantastic on social media, on Twitter. He's brilliant. Like interact with him on there and send him questions. And it's a, I'm definitely a fanboy. So I'm, I, I would, I'm a self-admitted fanboy of Professor Stephen Siler and the 80-20 uh, approach and, and the theories but it's just as with anything it's not one size fits all mm-hmm. it is an underlying fundamental part of how I coach but it's not how I coach for every single individual I work with yeah and it, it also if you're if you're training for 5k or below and or you're a middle distance runner again changes all over so it's yeah yeah, that's another long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that's a really good answer, and I really appreciate that, Robbie. It's brilliant. Um, and we're just going to end with one final question, which is: you've well, you've done, uh, you've done, you, you're doing coaching still. It's like a lifelong um, uh, journey, isn't it? The coaching. You've done ultra running. You've done the run across Jordan. And you've now written a book. Like Emma Morton wants to know what is next. What's next? So like, yeah, the last couple of years I've done some ultra cycling and I, I managed to win one of those races. But there's one called the Trans Pyrenees that was I DNF'd it. It was the first one I did, and I, I do want to go back there and try. They, it's the organisers of the Trans Continental. Some wonderful films about that um, bike race uh, on, on on YouTube and stuff. So hopefully next year, the last couple of years, it's not gone ahead, and I really want to do that. Um, and I would love to get back to doing some more 24-hour and longer running. And unfortunately, I've had a bit of a long-term injury that whilst didn't stop me running across Jordan, if you do watch the Jordan video, I look like someone like, secretly shot me with a bow and arrow. <laughs> I could go a long way in a fair bit of pain for quite a long time, but I was very far uh, from uh, the performance athlete that I, I wish to be. And I'm, I'm working my way back to that. I'm back up to doing some decent training and, and I'm doing a lot of work with a physio here in, in, uh, in Pry, which is our next town along. Um, uh, Elenia and she's been helping me a lot with the, the like my proprioception and balance and so I yeah next is hopefully to, to go back and do some some big some hundred mile ultras and to do them as fast as possible um, and some bicycling some, some riding some bikes around sounds like a good life it's brilliant uh, that sounds um, great and you can all follow what did you say your preferred one is Twitter people want to follow you on Twitter that's the best oh, one 
I'm great on social media. On Twitter, I do. I don't do. I just interact every now and again and just retweet stuff. If you really like, most of my stuff's on fast running. So if you look on fast running social media, I do dabble in the Instagram. I quite enjoy putting pictures of my. If you like pictures of dogs, um, uh, or just pictures of, of my face looking tired, or my wife away down a hill. These are the main the main things I post on Instagram. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's been a real success this evening. We've had um, lots of really good questions and, lo and lots of people are saying really nice things now about you. Um, if you have anything more to say nice about Robbie, then do type it now because I'm going to read them all out to him um, just to, to make him feel good about this hour that he has given to us. It's very generous of you, Robbie. Um, so Train Like a Horse says, thank you very much for replying to my question. Big smiley face. Um, Marcus McDonald says, thanks, Robbie. Also a smiley face. Uh, Lena Genemark says, uh, thank you from Sweden. Um, Orange Goblin said, a big thumbs up for answering their question as well. John Gardner says, interesting. I didn't know about the history, the subtleties, and the elite versus amateur with the whole 80-20 thing. And he says, thanks, Robin. Um, and Move More Now says, is your knee back to normal yet? Oh, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> It's going there. It's not. It's not normal. It may never be normal again. But uh, I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm two knee surgeries down. American football oh. injury from when I jumped. Was oh, the first no. one. But uh, yeah. it's, it's definitely improving. And I can. Uh, my balance is a little bit less wonky. I actually, Paul Tierney. I think you might have had a. I don't know. Uh, he's he helped me a lot with getting my working my feet because they were basically I look like a duck just standing around. Just, uh, <laughs> like, I was on the edges of my feet, and we just we did a lot of re-education of my. With my feet and, and and loads of little things. That's that frustrating thing, isn't it? When you've got a long-term injury, you just want to hit it with a hammer and fix it, mm. and have like an instant fix. And it's mm. just it's months and months, or sometimes years, of doing tiny little things that don't really feel any different. And then one day you can run properly again. Mm. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, we wish you all the best. It really is a fantastic book, and there will be a link to it. One one thousand one running tips by Robbie Britton um, in the film description or the podcast notes below. So do check that out. Um, thank you so much, Robbie. It's been lovely to see you. Lovely to speak to you. Um, thanks for all your amazing advice. And um, yeah, we'll let you go for your evening um, out there in Italy. I'm going to bed. Our head out. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me, for helping share the the the, uh, the book with other people. Well, I hope you get loads of sales now, and thank you so much for chatting to us tonight. Cheers. Cool. See you. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.